And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with me today, Dr. Kevin Sherritt. Dan, good to be with you. Kevin, it's good to have you here. This is the time of year as uh, Christians uh, reflect upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that uh, some of the scripture passages are particularly dear to the child of God. And uh, the question on the table today, Kevin, is this. Some people refer to Psalm 22 as um, basically the psalm of the cross. And so we thought that perhaps it'd be appropriate, particularly this time of year, to explore that psalm, Psalm 22. And um wondering if you can get us started on that, please. Sure, I'd be glad to. It's, um, it's a remarkable psalm in many ways. It's been called the fifth gospel. Uh, so vivid is its depiction of uh, even the details of our Lord's crucifixion. Um, but it is important to state at the outset that Psalm 22 is a psalm of David. And um, presumably it tells either of his or of some other person's anguished uh, suffering. Um, Yet, if you look at the psalm, especially in its entirety, we have no idea of any event in David's life, or anyone else's life for that matter, that answers to the depth and and the breadth uh, of the horror that's here, and especially which answers to the subsequent glory and dominion that is recorded in the second half of the psalm, even, even if about David's personal life, which is, which is in many ways a life of humiliation followed by glory. Um, but it's only a shadow of the kind of humiliation and the extent of the glory foreseen in this psalm. And so, you know, if the psalm belongs to Israel, which it does, um, it would seem like only the suffering messianic servant of Isaiah 53 Experiences anything like what's depicted in this psalm. So I think it's uh, fundamentally a legitimate thing for Christians to do what they do, which is we read the psalm uh, as essentially the story of our Lord's crucifixion and and resurrection. Mm -hmm. Maybe some of our listeners have never read Psalm 22. Uh, I'll read just the first two verses. Uh, It opens like this. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. I'll just stop there. Mm, Well, you know, it's interesting. The Lord on the cross, of course, quotes those uh, mysterious words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the very last thing he says uh, from the cross is, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Those words, uh, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, they come from Psalm 31. And from this fact that you have from Jesus's lips a citation from Psalm 22 and another citation from Psalm 31 at the end of his suffering, there arose in the early church a tradition that on the cross Jesus was citing or memorizing or, or praying to himself this particular section of the Psalter, you know, the section that would include Psalm 22 and Psalm 31 for his own comfort and strength. And, and whatever the truth of that tradition, 
it's clear that this particular psalm was very much on his mind. Not only was he quoting from it, he was living it and fulfilling it. And uh, when we come to that first verse, we're immediately sort of staring into an abyss. I mean, I don't think there have been more terrible and more difficult and more dreadful words spoken than that. But I I think uh, it's interesting because John Calvin says that there's not one of the godly who doesn't ask himself the same question daily. In other words, he, he understands that this question, this experience of God forsakenness, is something that all Christians have some contact with, have some um, encounter with, because we do encounter a tension between, you know, the the uh, the core goodness and faithfulness of God and the often um, difficult, lived, brutal, suffering realities of life. And since everyone's sort of caught in that tension, uh, Calvin speaks of the fact that he goes on and actually says, there's not, this question in, in verse 1 is ever entering into the minds of the godly, and there's not one of the godly who doesn't daily experience in himself the same thing. And so I think it's important to see that what we have in verse 1 is Jesus suffering for us, at, at the bottom, if you will, or underneath our own sense of God-forsakenness, our own... Um, you know, the, the inner man, the old man that we wrestle with is, 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 a, is a corrupt man, an unbelieving man, uh, an atheistic man, if you will. And um, he's a man who likes to question God, who likes to doubt, who, uh, who uh, uses his sense of forsakenness in the world bitterly up, up against God. And Jesus is here sort of in that abyss of God-forsakenness, but he's behaving faithfully. Notice he says, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? It's actually a confession for all of its despair, for all of its mystery, for all of its staring into the abyss. It's an actual confession of utter covenant fidelity. Jesus owns God as his God twice and asks why you have forsaken me. It's as if he's saying, I will not forsake you. I will not allow the bond of fidelity between you and I to be snapped from my side, even if it is mysteriously or impossibly snapped for yours. And so this question um, is, is a vivid window into the depth of our Lord's vicarious obedience and faithfulness for us. Well, it's beautiful. And you've already answered a question I had, and that was, Christians feel forsaken by God sometimes and you've covered it totally so I think what we'll do is we'll take a short break today here on A Plain Answer is Dr. Kevin Sherritt we're talking about the question of Psalm 22 and does it apply as a Psalm of the Cross and we'll continue this discussion on the other side of the break stay with us we'll be right back We'll be right back with our program in just a minute. 
Now a reminder that your gifts to this ministry enable us to bring you thoughtful, Christ-centered programming 24 hours a day. Would you prayerfully consider helping us with a tax-deductible gift this month? Redeemer Broadcasting is a 501c3 not-for-profit broadcast ministry. We're entirely listener-supported and have no advertisements. If you would like to help support us this month, and perhaps in the future, our mailing address is Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Once again, Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Stay with us now for the second half of our program. And welcome back. You're tuned to A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today, Dr. Kevin Sherritt. Now, Kevin, you were talking about Psalm 22 before our break, and uh, we were talking about my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, let's keep going now through this psalm and see more that applies to not only uh, a psalm of the cross, but uh, a psalm of the resurrection. Sure, Dan. The psalm alternates between sort of I or my sections and then, then you sections. Where So the, the, the suffering servant, the sufferer in the psalm is saying, you know, my God... I'm in this situation, and then there's a, yet you, if you look at verse 3, it says, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Um, there's, a, there's an appeal there, if you will, uh, to God's faithfulness. He goes on to speak of, of the fathers crying out and being delivered. There's a sense here in which uh, the Lord, is, if you will, is appealing to the covenant history where God has delivered the fathers. Um, and then he, he keeps alternating back and forth throughout the, the psalm to his, his own plight. I'm a worm, and, and I'm not a man. I'm scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Many of these details, as we go through the psalm, are actually recorded in, in, the, in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And so he alternates back and says, You're the one who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. Uh, on you I was cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. And I, I always picture our Lord at least meditating on this psalm while his own mother is at the foot of his cross, a sword piercing her own soul. Uh, This psalm goes on to talk about the the bulls of Bashan surrounding him. His enemies are depicted as these ravening, uh, roaring lions and animals. And then he speaks of his bones being out of joint and himself being poured out and his heart being like wax and his tongue sticking to his jaws. His, his hands and feet being pierced, yet he can count all his bones, his garments being divided, all of these details are picked up and recorded in the Gospels. And then toward the end of the first half of the psalm, his last stanza where he cries for deliverance. In verse 21 he says, Save me from the lion's mouth. And then there's this lightning flash. The psalm suddenly and abruptly changes from pleas and petitions to a declaration that you have rescued me mm. from the horns of the wild oxen. He declares his, his, his rescue and his deliverance, and then he moves on into the second half of the psalm, which I think is legitimately read as a, as a prophecy of 
the resurrection of Christ, the sufferer in the first half of the psalm. So, I mean, if you look at, say, verse 22, the beginning of the second half of the psalm, it says, I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Well, our listeners will probably remember that that text is actually cited in Hebrews chapter 1 of the risen and ascended Christ praising his Father in the midst of the congregation of the faithful and of the saints. And so, in 22, you've moved, verse 22, you've moved to the risen Christ now giving glory to God as the firstborn among many brethren and and leading us, uh, becoming the chief conductor of our hymns, as Calvin puts it, Mm -hmm. before the Father. And so there's a a transition, and if you follow this transition out... um, the, the psalm begins to sort of move out in these um, concentric circles. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. He, he starts with what's near at hand with the people of Israel, praising him. And he says, he hasn't despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He hasn't hidden his face. He has heard. And then he speaks of a vow that he made. It's as if the Lord himself made a vow on the cross. And the results of the vow are that once you are delivered, you must express your thanksgiving and your gratitude in the temple. Uh, And you do that with your friends and family, and you have a festive meal. And that sort of Eucharistic result of the cross is depicted in the rest of the, the psalm. From you comes my praise in the great congregation, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. So he's calling the poor and the oppressed to this feast, this, this uh, uh, temple-oriented feast. And here the temple for us would, would mean the heavenly temple, the temple in which Jesus says to the Father, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. So it's not only that, that he leads us in praise, he calls us to a feast to eat and to drink um, For example, verse 29 says, All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. So the rich and the poor, Jew and Gentile, are depicted later in the psalm as coming to worship with the risen Lord at the temple. And um, not only rich and poor, um, the afflicted and the prosperous, but Jew and Gentile. Verse 27 says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship you. See, see here the psalm bursts all of its bonds, Dan. It, it, it's well beyond anything that could be attributed to David hmm. or to any Israelite. Uh, the, the sufferer has been delivered, and the sufferer now leads um, an international and uh, contingent of worshipers up into the heavenly temple for a heavenly feast. <laughs> to me, it's very encouraging as we read this and see the almost depression that is seen in verse 1 and how it comes to this point. Um, right. And as you point out, that God answers him. Um, then there's redemption, if you will, from here on out and success um, godly success. It's so encouraging. For the person who has come across this psalm maybe for the first time, Psalm 22, and can relate to this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, I think that it's very encouraging for them to hear what you're saying, Kevin, uh, about this 
second half of the psalm. It's very, very important to read the whole psalm. It, it goes from the depths of the depths um, to the heights of, you know, essentially worldwide dominion, which is why the psalm mm-hmm. must uh, finally be applied to our Lord Jesus Christ and only to us in Him. Right. It's because He was faithful in our sense of God forsakenness, mm-hmm. um, because He asked that question with fidelity, because He, he remained uh, faithful in, in the abyss of our suffering, in our humanity, that He is exalted, and exalted in such a way that His exaltation is our exaltation. That, that's another great theme of the second half of the psalm, is that the resurrection is what creates the church. The resurrection is, if you will, our resurrection. Mm-hmm. It's a corporate event. The very first thing that's said about the, uh, the risen sufferer in the psalm is, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Mm-hmm. In the midst of the congregation, it's as if the resurrection of Christ creates a heavenly worshiping uh, congregation. And, and the psalm goes even further and, and depicts out infinitely into the future and says that um, all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship before him shall bow down all who go to the, to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Even the dead will worship this, this, this one. And in verse 30, posterity shall serve him. A seed shall serve him. And so it's not just Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, living and dead, afflicted and prosperous. It's all future generations mm. are depicted as the seed uh, to, that, will, that will serve this Lord. And, and the psalm ends in a, in a fascinating note, which I think is a charge to the church. It, it says, It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. He has heard the cry. He has listened. Um, and notice the words told and, and come and proclaim. And that means that we must tell we must proclaim the gospel to generations um, that are coming, even generations yet unborn, to our children and to our grandchildren. And so if the, the, the suffering and the exaltation of Christ in this psalm is to be known to the ends of the earth, then we must proclaim the gospel. We must tell people what, what God has done for Jesus Christ. Yes. Oh, Amen. Last week we talked about um, the success of the gospel. We had Pastor Bill Shishko on the program. And this ties in nicely, I think, with some of the points that he was making, how that our King Jesus really is spreading his gospel, and it's and we should be encouraged. Um, but I want to go back to that person now, to um, that person who is discouraged and and still is feeling very much a part of uh, verse 1, my God, mm-hmm. my God, why have you forsaken me? And in particular, um, some of the folks, at least in our circles here in the Hudson Valley, have just lost loved ones. Um, last week was uh, a friend in Westminster Church who passed away, and a week prior, another friend. And these are awfully hard times for um, people losing loved ones. And um, the resurrection relates to this so very uniquely. Maybe you could help guide us a little bit for that one who has just lost a loved one. Well, I think the, the, uh, the strange but yet very real comfort of verse 1 is that you read a verse like that and you think, wow, this is a God who in my flesh has been where I am, you know, 
there's no place, however dark or however abandoned. This is a sort of question which, if we were to ask it with an unfaithful spirit, would essentially be a, a, a slander of God, right? Uh, it, w- it would be uh, wicked. It would reflect a kind of atheistic heart. And yet, Jesus is down in that darkness asking that question faithfully uh, for us. So, to me, the comfort here is that the Lord is underneath or in the abyss, that he doesn't just send help from the outside, there's no, Jesus is not just helping us from above or from outside. He helps us from within our frailty, from within our weakness, and especially from within our apparent God-forsaken darkness when we're crying out and we're groaning and there are no answers. Um, and so, and, and you might say, well, once I know that, my situation doesn't change. And... Um, and that's mm-hmm. true. That's true. That that may be true, uh, although it may be enormously comforting to another person. Part part of what I think we have to do is is realize that our comfort is going to have to come in the fact that Jesus was in the abyss we're in, but that he was raised from that abyss, and that in him that resurrection means we and our faithful loved ones are destined for this joyful feast of light that the second part of the psalm indicates. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, that's the only comfort the Christian gospel has, is that Jesus was crucified, and he was raised, and that kingship belongs to him, and he rules over the nations. Mm -hmm. uh, All all people are going to eat and worship and bow down. Mm -hmm. Praise the Lord. The uh, pastoral aspect of this psalm is is great. It's deep, and we I thank you very much for bringing all of this out. If a listener has a question for you, uh, Kevin, uh, about this Psalm 22 and its implications and application for us today, um, we'd encourage them to email us here at the Ministry of Redeemer Broadcasting, and that address is ministry at redeemerbroadcasting.org. And Kevin, while you were speaking, my mind took a little rabbit trail, perhaps, back to an old uh, statement of faith uh, that's found in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, question one, a a well-known question, and it's talking about the comfort, and it says, um, what is thy only comfort in life and death? The answer is, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. I find that a uh, precious uh, statement of faith, that question and answer one of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a marvelous, uh, rich, and uh, pastoral statement of uh, what our only comfort in life and death is. And, uh, and we have that comfort because um, Jesus was in the desperate straits he was in, and uh, he was not despised or abhorred. 
And uh, God did not, in the end, hide his face from him, but heard him. Well, praise the Lord. Today we've been talking about Psalm 22, a psalm of the cross, also a psalm of resurrection. On the phone line with us has been Dr. Kevin Sherritt. I'm Dan Elmendorf. This entire episode is up on our website. If you'd like to check it out as a podcast, our address there is RedeemerBroadcasting.org. A quick reminder to join us again next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.